With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi Artemis, I'm Carly, and this week we're revisiting one of our favorite episodes about mushrooms, since it's a morale season for many of us. Today's guest is Kristen Blizzard of ModernForager.com. This episode first aired during Artemis' first year on the airwaves in 2020. This means you're going to hear from the great Marsha Brownlee, Artemis' original podcast host. In other news, Artemis is joining the Waypoint family, a network of sporting TV and podcast programming. We're excited since their ads will help fund the work Artemis does. Check out the waypointtv.com website for their outdoorsy programming. Now listen in for one of our longtime favorites. And without further ado, let's hit play. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Hi, welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Marsha Brownlee, and with me today is our co-host, Becca Aceto. Hey, Becca. Hey, Marsha. How are you doing today? Oh, it's a cloudy day in Idaho, but I can't complain. I was thinking earlier, getting ready for this podcast, that one of the perks of having a podcast is being able to have on guests whose brain I really want to pick. Um, and I sometimes wish I could like upload the knowledge matrix style and end every episode saying, I know Kung Fu or <laughs> whatever is appropriate. Uh, so I'm really excited today to pick the brain of Kristen Blizzard, who is here to talk about mushroom hunting. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Marsha. So excited to be here. So excited to have you. Uh, you're you're in Colorado, right? Yes, I am in Colorado, and um, and we have Idaho and Montana represented too, right? Correct. Yep. Cool. The, the great Western states. Yeah, and just doing the it, Wyoming may feel a little left out. <laughs> they're, they're here in spirit. <laughs> they probably like to be left out. They're like That's maybe true. everyone will forget about us. Yep. Mention us. Can't see us. Don't look. Uh, Kristen, what are you foraging in Colorado right now? Um, well, I'm sad to say that Colorado's been really dry, although other parts of the state did get a little bit of rain lately. But um, morel mania is going on everywhere right now. And um, uh, we haven't been able to put any morels in our basket just yet. We're hoping for a little rain. So... Uh, being a forager and just chomping on the bit to get outside, we've been chasing asparagus. It's kind of the end of the season of wild asparagus. Um, I had some nettles the other day and um, spruce and fir tips are out right now. And also um, I've even been chasing down some arnica. So, um, you know, we're sort of plant newbies, I would say, but, um, you know, we expand a little bit beyond mushrooms when we can. Uh, so, so I have two things. One, when I told our podcast editor that we were doing this episode, she immediately sent me a picture of two buckets full of beautiful morels. 
Um, and she's in Idaho gathering them. So she was yes. excited as well. Everybody has mania right now. Everybody, you know, that ever thinks about hunting morels is out looking for them at the moment, um, pretty much everywhere. So that doesn't surprise me. And then you mentioned Arnica and the Arnica is blossoming all over the hillside here. And I was actually talking with a friend the other day uh, about what, what part of the flower do you harvest or what well, part I'm, of the yeah, I'm kind of a newbie to Arnica, I will say, but um, I believe that you you harvest the, the tip of the flower, including the green bit, and then you let it dry out a bit. So um, the seeds inside the, the flower pod get a bit fuzzy and the leaves dry out. And um, once it's dry, you can then infuse it into oil and... I mean, you can go onto the internet and look up more of this information, but I'm under the understanding it takes about 30 days or so to properly infuse. And then once you have infused oil, uh, you can obviously use it to make kind of whatever you want from that point. So that's what I'm trying, but it's my first foray into doing this with Arnica. Um, but I love Arnica so much and it, it's just so amazing. So I'm hoping it works. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about who you are and how you became a mushroom hunter? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Trent and I, my husband Trent and I, run a website called Modern Forager, uh, which is modernforager.com. We are, uh, by trade, web designers and online marketers. So, And both of us have been doing that for, gosh, 20 years, probably, dating myself or more. Um and so naturally, when we sort of fell in love with this, this idea of mushroom hunting, uh, it's kind of natural for us to sort of combine it with an online platform, really, and tell the world about what we're doing and share our stories and blog about it. And um, that's just kind of who we are, really. Um, I would say I became a mushroom hunter probably about seven years ago. Um, I was introduced to it through a science center that I was working at um, at the time called Walking Mountains. They're a, a wonderful uh, science and nature center in Avon, Colorado. Um, and they did mushroom forays out of there. They, they had a naturalist that led forays at the time. They don't anymore. But I sort of had it kind of peripherally on my brain. I was um, doing marketing for them. Um and, you know, I kind of watched the naturalist going in and out and saw the people coming back excited. And then I had another friend that was into it. I went out with her a couple times and then Trent and I met and he sort of had the same experience. He had a friend, he had been out. We started going out together and just learning more about it. And I think really all it took was that first sort of mother load of a day where everything shines, you know, mother nature was super happy. There was rain, there was, there was warmth. Um, Colorado was doing its thing and the mushrooms were fantastic. And, um, I'm curious to know, uh, if for you guys as hunters, if it's kind of the same, because this obsession takes root and I feel like it's almost like a switch flips in you. Uh, you know, maybe there's something sort of long forgotten in our genetic code that gets turned back on that, you know, says, Hey, uh, th there's a challenge and there's a reward here. And, and once that switch flips on in you, it's almost impossible to deny. And it, and it does become sort of like this obsession really to, 
to go out. And, um, you know, at first I think it's about the idea of the hunt and the reward that comes with that. But in time, you sort of build this deep connection to, to the forest and to your environment. Um, and it becomes really special. So I'm curious to know from you guys, if you have that same kind of thing where it's hard, so hard to describe, but you have this sort of innate sense that feels like it's within you as a hunter that kind of turns you on and keeps you moving. For, for me, I would say yes, definitely. Uh, it was, and it, it wasn't even about spending time outside. It was just the way in which I was spending time outside because I've been spending time outside camping and hiking and appreciating nature my whole life, but I didn't start hunting until I was an adult. And the second I entered into the woods with that mindset. Yeah, it really, it, it changed everything for me. And then the, the dose of success Mm -hmm. is something that you just, I I keep, uh, not looking for because, I mean, I definitely think that's the start of the obsession or the passion to get back out there is, is chasing that feeling of success, but then it does become more than that. And I find kind of what, seems like you've experienced as well it's like it starts with one thing right for me it started with deer hunting and and now I'm foraging wild mushrooms so it's like it starts with one thing and then it just builds and and the curiosity of really subsisting on on nature um becomes just something I'm I'm much more deeply interested in than ever and it was like a switch flipped yeah I think it, for me, it provides such a deep appreciation of just sort of having this connection to where the food comes from and this idea of sense of place and almost with mushrooms, um, you know, terroir, even I don't wine people talk about terroir, but as mushroom hunters, we talk about it too, because, you know, we preserve our mushrooms often. And so we have a lot of dried stashes that we're checking into over the year to, um, to eat in the winter. And all you have to do is open that, take that top off and stick your nose in there. And and this experience comes back to you. And and I love this idea that we can appreciate the experience and the deep connection to nature that we have, um, even if we're not out in the woods, which is really cool. I've always thought about it a lot, like, um, getting to know a person, you know, one of the first things you ask them is what's your name? And then you ask, where are you from? And then you ask, what do you do? Or what do you like to do? And when you spend time outdoors and you, it, and it becomes a part of you, you want to get to know it more. So mm-hmm. that turns into, you know, what is this called? What, it, what purpose does it serve? Who eats it? You know, when does it grow? Um, why does it look the way that it looks? And all those questions, I think it's just natural as curious human beings, especially those of us who spend so much time outside hunting or fishing or, or just hiking and um, appreciating, I think it's, I would hope that it's just a natural progression for a lot of people to, to want to learn those things. Yeah, for sure. I like that description. And just that idea of, of slowly building intimacy by just getting to know it really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, we talk a lot about the fact that I mean, this hobby, if we if we would call it a hobby, is something that deepens with you and grows with you as your knowledge grows. So it never gets old. You're always learning something new and and adding to your basket, if you will, mm-hmm. um, which falls right in line with what you just said, Becca. 
So can you tell us more about wild mushrooms? And I think I'm thinking specifically like how they grow and interact with the ecosystem and what's happening below the surface that we don't see. Yeah. Yeah. I think mushrooms are super interesting, number one. And it's really important to understand that the, the mushroom itself is really simply the fruit of a much larger fungal body that lives underground. And that's the idea of the mycelium. Um, And the mycelium is sort of a a massive network of, you know, we can think of them as roots, but they're really not roots. But if you visually, if you think of them that way, it's, they kind of look that way, but they're massive. And um, that mycelial network is underneath the forest floor everywhere in every forest. Um, And many of the mushrooms um, are something that we call um, mycorrhizal, meaning that they have a symbiotic relationship with a tree, um, where the tree uh, gets help absorbing nutrients from that mycelial network, and the mushroom extracts sugars and other beneficial things from the tree. So they have this sort of handshake going on. Um, But the most interesting thing I think about uh, mushrooms is that they are sort of like, I think of them as an information agent of the forest, kind of like the internet, really, that mycelial network is huge. It creates all these connective tissues between trees and plants and allows these entities in the forest to to talk to one another, really, and share information through that network. Um, You know, whether that be things like... um, sharing resources in times of stress or just uh, even passing information along about uh, what one tree might be seeing to another tree. Um, And it sounds crazy, but it really does happen. I mean, there are amazing TED Talks about this idea of of mushrooms um, providing this network for trees to share information. Um, And, you know, scientifically, they've proven it through you know, the use of radioactive isotopes and, and sending them through the, the network. It's like one of the coolest things ever. So, um, yeah, mushrooms are, are super interesting. And the mushrooms themselves are, are fruits of this much larger fungal body. Um, and so I think I remember, I don't, I'm not sure if it was a TED Talk or like a Radiolab podcast, but it was called The Woodwide Web. Uh-huh. I haven't that, seen that one. Okay, but to, I'm pretty sure interesting. that's what it was talking to cuz it, it you're you're comparing it to the internet reminded me of it and I think it was mm-hmm. kind of the same thing just referring it referring to it as that in, information network and how if one tree was under stress from being attacked by bugs or whatever that mm-hmm. down the line quote unquote line in the wood wide web other trees would start producing the chemicals that they needed to combat that before it was in their area. Yes. It, I mean, they do. Absolutely. Sounds exactly right. Um, and it's fascinating, this it idea. And most people don't think about it, but, um, you know, as mushroom foragers, we have to have a deep connection to the trees because most of the mushrooms that we're looking for, not all of them, um, but a, a good portion of the mushrooms that that are delicious that we're looking for have this association with a tree and so being a mushroom hunter means knowing your trees because first you're looking for the right type of forest Um, and some of these mushrooms that we're after you know depending on where you are geographically um, can 
have the same relationship with a different tree based on, you know, what state they're in might be a different tree in California than it is in Colorado. So when you say, how do we find these, it becomes, you know, it's sort of a more complex question because it really depends on where you are, if you will. Um, But yeah, wild mushrooms and and trees in the forest, they're all very much tied together. And um, that's one of the, the ways that we, one of the places that we start is with the type of forest and the type of tree. So with the mycelium, is there, uh, how far down is it approximately? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a good question. I'd, I mean, you can walk into really any forest and kind of d- just move the dirt around with your hands. And often you will see, it sort of looks like this um, kind of white sort of spider web um, type material. And, and sometimes you can even see it without moving things around. Um, and so it's really not very far below the surface. In mm-hmm. fact, um, you know, in our mushroom areas, um, things that can damage uh, a mushroom territory would be like livestock grazing, for example. Um, if you trample the mycelium, it can get damaged. So imagine a ton of cows walking over um, all of that mushroom mycelium um, and and they can get damaged. So I don't know how far down exactly they go. I mean, I'm going to guess, you know, no more than a a couple feet because I know that you can also see the mycelial network kind of right underneath the surface of the soil. Um, I am certainly not a scientist, so (laughs) you'd have to ask the mycologists that question. (laughs) Cool. That's curious. I think that's, I was picturing it less fragile, more deep, deeper. It's de- it definitely can be, um, it's pretty fragile. I mean, you can, you know, if you had a group of 60 people tromping through the woods, that could also damage it. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, it, it's hard to know, but I, cows definitely damage it. I know that for a fact because I've seen it happen. Uh, so what's your favorite mushroom to forage? Um, well, being from Colorado, I think that the answer to that question is probably the King Belite, um, mushroom hunters, uh, we have like a couple different sets of language when we talk about mushrooms. There is the sort of Latin that the super geeky people, the mycologists, um, insist on using all the time. And then, you know, people like Trent and I, the, the foragers out there typically using more common names. Um, but the King Belite in Colorado, commonly called the Porcini mushroom, um, is also... Uh, the Latin name is called Boletus edulis, or in Colorado, it's Boletus rubriceps is the species. Um, all of the porcinis at a time uh, were called edulis, and uh, often the species names get changed pretty regularly. In Colorado, those, those porcini mushrooms have really sort of red caps. We call them rubies after rubriceps, and they are these beautiful beautiful mushrooms that sort of look like almost a hamburger bun in the ground when you're hunting them. And they are just an absolute delight to find out in the woods. They're a dense mushroom, meaty, beefy. Um, they have, they have pores, not gills and beautiful red caps and almost, um, so dense that they have like a crunch even when you cook them. 
And they're super versatile in the kitchen. You can kind of put them in almost anything and, and they will be delicious. So I think for so many reasons, just the versatility, um, hunting that, that porcini in Colorado is my absolute favorite. But I will say, um, Trent and I sort of grew our obsession early on over the idea of hunting morels in old wildfire scars. We call them burn morels. Um, and so that is a very close second for me because I have a great fondness for um, tromping through wildfire scars from the season before. And I know it's kind of a crazy thing to do. It's a little bit odd to think about a wildfire in a positive light. Um, but we spent a lot of time in old wildfires looking for morels too. I have, for my favorite mushroom to forage is the morel. And I think for me, it's twofold. One is because I'm new to mushroom hunting and I feel like the morel is pretty easy to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's a little less fear around that for me, but it also happened in tangent with my, with my experience hunting bear in the spring, because the same oh. area where I bear hunt in the same time that I bear hunt, uh, aligns with, with spring morel season. So yeah. I, I enjoy, there's just an intricate connection between bear and morel and I'll hunt morel during the day and then bear in the evening. <laughs> there's, there's no better day. I know. I mean, I think that's super <laughs> fascinating to think about actually, because in Colorado, um, our mushroom season overlaps with, um, deer hunting season. And uh, we start with bow season and then move into um, rifle season. And we are often out in the woods at the same time as, as the hunters. And, um, you know, we've always coexisted wonderfully. We, you know, wear orange and make ourselves super visible. Um, But just this idea that almost wild mushrooms were sort of meant to be eaten with game in a sense, you know, the, the seasons overlap. And I think that's pretty cool to hear you say in the spring, you also have an overlap with hunting too. That's really cool. Um, have you ever eaten them together? Do they taste oh, delicious yes. together? They taste yeah. delicious together. Definitely. See? Yeah. Yep. yeah um, so. Becca, do you have a favorite mushroom to forage? Well, I'll agree with you, Marcia. I like looking for morels mostly because I'm not super well-versed in all the other mushrooms. Um, that we have in Idaho. And I'll add to that this year, I made it a goal to at least properly be able to identify and eat one other type of mushroom. So I'm out there and it's still, um, it's still mushroom season here now. So I'm still finding them out, but it was funny because a few weeks ago I was out looking for morels and I found this new spot where I was finding a lot of, um, Chris, I know you mentioned like the burn morels. I was finding a Mm -hmm. lot of blonde morels this year. Yeah. which has been a first for me. So it's been really exciting because I have this new spot that I can go to um, that seems pretty reliable. But I found what I now know to be a coral mushroom. Ah. Um, but I didn't know what it was at first. So I took a picture and I posted it online and I just said, you know, who knows what this is? Yeah. And the funny and scary thing is that so many people responded with different answers and everybody... <laughs> so confident in their answer. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to eat this, even though now I know what it is, because I've done a little more research on my own. But it's just funny, because, you know, eating a new mushroom, you know, adding a new mushroom to your repertoire and beginning to eat it is a big deal, because you want to make sure you're 100% correct. And so 
I think that can be a big barrier for people. You know, a lot of folks know morels, but going from that to the next mushroom with absolute certainty can, I think can be tough. Yeah. I mean, I think with the coral mushroom, you chose one that's a little bit more difficult. Um, Those are called Romaria and they vary geographically, even though they look very similar a coral mushroom in one state that looks the same as a coral mushroom here in Colorado, one could cause gastric upset in one state and not in another. So I think that's why you get a lot of different answers with that particular mushroom. Um, We have a couple different colors of them here and probably different species. Um, And one of them, uh, even though people eat it, Others will say, oh, I don't eat that because I've heard it causes gastric upset or something. So it's a, you know, we've eaten it. it it's it, it's delicious as jerky, um, but it is a more difficult mushroom just because of that. Um, but I think this idea of, you know, so many people that we meet and we, you know, we talk mushrooms all the time. You always hear, well, aren't you, aren't you so afraid, you know? that you're going to die eating a wild mushroom. Um, it's always <laughs> it's the first funny, question. But it's just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. Are you afraid you're going to die? Well, yes and no. I mean, it's like anything, you know, you do your research. Um, like you said, you want to be 100% certain you are eating a mushroom that you've ID'd correctly, obviously. And you just, you know, like anything, you do the research, you put the time in, um, you know, you approach it with caution always. I love the fact that you guys say you're adding, you know, one new mushroom, two new mushrooms to your basket every year. That's how we started out. You know, you start with one or two that, that are easy to identify and, you know, you, you make it a goal to, to add a couple to the basket each year. And after seven years of doing it, I feel like Trent and I probably have about 30 mushrooms in our basket now that we can identify safely and eat. Um, and you know, I, I don't think it's an unsafe hobby. I really don't. It's like, once you get to know it, it's like, do you know the difference between an apple and an orange? I mean, it's really that, that easy. Um, you just never eat something that you don't know what it is ever, you know, don't be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think problems come into play mostly when, uh, you know, maybe people from Asia, come over here to places like California and there are mushrooms there that, that look very similar to mushrooms they eat at home that are safe, that are not safe in California. So you get this, um, it's sort of problems with location, um, where you have mushrooms that are resembling safe mushrooms that are really not safe. Um, I think that's where major problems come into play because most people are not going to just pick up some random mushroom and, and eat it. You know, they never should. You never should do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. If you you take one thing away from the podcast, don't do that. Don't do that. That feels like a good segue uh, to tell us about a few popular wild mushrooms that every forager should know about. Yeah. Okay. Well, you guys have, have brought up the the one major one that I feel like every person everywhere knows about, and that's morels. And why um, do you, real quick, why do you think that is? You know, I mean, I think it is because geographically they're widely spread. So, you know, you're going to get them in pretty much everywhere. I mean, if you go to a naturalist or a mushroom observer where you can kind of 
follow the observations of citizen scientists. Thank you to all those people. Um, and you look at a map of the United States, you're going to see red dots pretty much almost everywhere. I mean, I looked at it earlier. Uh, I didn't see many in Florida and not too many in, you know, maybe like North Dakota, but they were widely spread out, out throughout the, the entire United States. And, and one interesting thing too with morels is that pending where you find them, people have sort of very special relationships with them. Um, both Trent and I grew up in the Midwest. Um, we're Michigan people. And so, um, Me too. yay, Michigan, yay, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as you know, I mean, Michiganders love their morels and so do, so does everyone in Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and throughout the Midwest. I mean, it's just sort of, uh, something that even people grow up with and gets passed down from generation to generation, this idea of hunting morels in the spring. And, um, you know, hopefully it's not sort of a, a, a dying pastime because the trees that they associate with are, are dying. The elm and the ash trees are disappearing very quickly. Um, so I, I, I think that's interesting to see what's going to happen over time in the Midwest with morel hunting. Um, but in the West, it's, it's much different. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, this idea of hunting burn morels is very, very different. So we sort of get this, we have sort of an audience of people from all over the place and people from the Midwest really don't even know about this idea of burn morels, this phenomenon that happens in old wildfire scars. It's totally foreign to them, even though the mushrooms, um, pretty much are the same. They're, they're a different species, but they taste the same. They look the same. I believe, I mean, if you have a very refined palate, you might <laughs> say differently. Um, but you know, when we go hunting morels, we're collecting five gallon buckets full. And when you go hunting in the Midwest, you're, you know, if you're lucky, you're doing that, but sometimes you're just collecting enough for dinner. You know, it's, it's a very different way to hunt, but everybody that I've ever talked to about morels definitely gets this mania. It's the spring rolls around. It's also one of the first mushrooms that comes out. I think that's another reason people get super excited about it. It's a springtime mushroom and one of the first that we see, one of the first that we get excited about. Um, I think for all those reasons, but gosh, there's, there is a crazy mania when it comes to morels. I mean, people just get this like glint in their eyes and, <laughs> forget about it, you know, don't get in between somebody and their mushroom patch at that time of the <laughs> season. <laughs> guard that as closely as we guard our For sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and you know, they're, they're prized, all these mushrooms in my mind are sort of a prized culinary mushrooms, you know, they're, they're very delicious and chefs everywhere would be thrilled to have a stash of really any one of these mushrooms, but Merles are very well known for that reason too. Are, um, in the, here in the West, are they associated with the tree? Uh, yes. Um, in Colorado, we have two seasons of morels. The blonde morels that you talked about, Becca, are going to uh, be found in riparian areas and they're going to be associating with cottonwood trees. Um, in the grasses, they are I think one of the hardest mushrooms to find out of all the mushrooms that I hunt for, 
uh, blonde morels I am least successful at. Um, they're difficult to find. Hiding under sort of that all the grass in the riparian areas under cottonwood trees, um, you sometimes have to be on your hands and knees, literally digging through the grass to find them. Um, you got a killer mushroom, I, Becca. Yes. Yeah. It was completely on accident that I found <laughs> Sometimes I think, you know, over the years, people put the time in. You got to put the time in and find your spots. And once you've found your spots, you keep them totally secret. <laughs> um, and year after year, those mushrooms are going to grow in the same places. So, so it becomes easier once you've done the time. Um, but, you know, until you get to that point, they can be really frustrating. Um, and then sort of as the season moves on, uh, we are lucky in the West to be able to go up in elevation. Um, and the black morels will come out at a bit of a higher elevation and they're going to associate with mixed conifer, like spruce and fir, um, in the West. Generally, these, you know, would be natural morels that I'm talking about. But at the same time, um, when we are looking for burn morels, we are also looking for a mixed conifer forest that was burned. So they still have that tree association, even though uh, the trees are are dead and dying at that point. Um, so yeah, I would just generally say mixed conifers, really. Um, so morels are number one on the list. I would say number two is probably the porcini, like I discussed earlier in Colorado. Um, those are also pretty widespread, although I think of them more as a Western mushroom. Um, I don't know why really, other than that, um, you know, I think all the really delicious porcinis come from Colorado. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> Ours are completely the unbiased. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, um, we've hunted... Uh, one very cool thing about porcinis is there is a, in the Pacific Northwest, they have a spring porcini or a spring bolete that you can hunt at the same time as the morels. So that is by far my absolute favorite place and time to hunt because getting both in one day is mm. like the coolest thing ever. Um, spring porcinis uh, taste a little bit different, similar, but a little bit of a different taste. Um all delicious and all just super fun, beautiful. I wish we could show pictures. They're really beautiful, sort of big, bulky, fun mushrooms to, to find. Um, the third mushroom on my list is a chanterelle mushroom. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced those, but you should definitely add them to your basket soon um, because they are wonderful. Um, the chanterelle mushroom is a beautiful, bright orange mushroom. Um Again, they are pretty widespread. Um, they have a wonderful apricot sort of smell and flavor to them. So they they are really delicate in the kitchen. You, you cook them much differently than you would think of uh, a morel or a porcini, which is going to be that kind of very classic mushroomy, eat it with meat type of, you know, thing with gravy. And it's it's got a real kind of dense mushroomy flavor. The chanterelle has a almost a fruity apricot delicate flavor that that you might eat with more of like the white meats type of thing or um, cheeses. It goes really well with cheese. Uh, we make something out of them called a Dexel where we uh, 
slow cook them with apricots and onions and sherry um, for about three hours in, in a Dutch oven. And they almost make this sort of like jam like consistency and that you can eat with like baked brie or mm. a creamy pasta. And it's just absolutely delicious. That's so so chanterelles are a beautiful mushroom and they're a beautiful mushroom too. They, they are almost like this fluted, uh, beautiful orange mushroom with kind of folds underneath. Um, really a wonderful mushroom. Um, the fourth mushroom on my list, just because again, I think it's a mushroom that really most people know about is called an oyster mushroom. And those are also a spring mushroom growing in similar areas to those blonde morels and the riparian areas. Um, oyster mushrooms grow on trees. They're a decomposing mushroom. And the other three mushrooms we talked about um, do not grow on a tree, but they have a mycorrhizal symbiotic relationship with a tree, but they're growing in the ground. Um, so I would say, I mean, there's a lot of mushrooms we could talk about, but those four are super popular. Um, and they're also, all four of them, wonderful in the kitchen, delicious mushrooms. Um, and, you know, I would say relatively easy to identify once you kind of get the hang of them, do a little bit of research. Um, yeah. Are there any, like, you, with the morels, I know there's the false morels. Um, yeah. I don't think they look anything alike. So once you, like, once you see them side by side, I don't feel like it's uh, too difficult to distinguish them in the field. But do you, yeah. the, any of the other mushrooms you mentioned have lookalikes that people should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say pretty much most mushrooms. I mean, morels are a good example. You know, there are a couple different types of false morels, as we call them. The uh, uh, the gyrometra is one, that kind of big brainy looking mm -hmm. one. And there's yeah. another one called a verpa. And that one, I think, really can fool people. Um, both of those morel or both of those false morels, you will hear people in different locations for whatever reason saying, oh, hey, you can eat these too. Um, I definitely would not advise that, but, you know, I mean, with proper preparation, I think that, that you can eat those other mushrooms. Um, but pretty much all mushrooms are going to have something that's called, that you would think of as a false version of it, even if you don't think it looks exactly alike. Um, a lot of people could be fooled mostly because they don't have the proper tool set to ID, you know what I mean, fully. Um, Belites, uh, Depending where you are in Colorado, they're very simple because we have only really one other type of bolete um, that's very similar growing in the same kind of area. It's called a, an aspen bolete. Um, and the identification, you know, one of them stains blue and one of them doesn't. You know, if you know that, easy peasy, right? Um, chanterelles. Um, there are quite a few other mushrooms, again, pending where you are, um, that are orange, and some of them are very poisonous. Um, but, you know, if you know a, cert a few certain things about a chanterelle, one being that they always have a white interior, a lot of these other mushrooms that are uh, poisonous are orange throughout. So um, it's really important to kind of do your research and get to know the mushroom, I think, from a book, first and foremost before you just go out and decide you're going to slay a bunch of orange mushrooms and try them, you know? Um, 
oyster mushrooms. I don't know of any, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are other mushrooms that look like an oyster mushroom, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, But I guess the simple answer to that is, yeah, there's always going to be something that you have to be careful, a little bit careful of, you know, um, in, in pending where you are. I mean, if you're hunting mushrooms in California, for example, you know, you open yourself up to a whole realm of poisonous mushrooms potentially. Whereas in Colorado, we don't have as many to worry about. Um, so it kind of depends where you are. Um, but back to that, you know, be 100% sure, put the time in, do the research. Um, I think maybe we'll talk a little bit later about how to get started on that. You know, what are the steps that you can follow to set yourself up for success type of deal? Cool. Uh, my brain is turning and I don't know what question to land on. <laughs> <laughs> we could segue right into safety. I think that's next on the yeah. list. <laughs> um, uh, you yeah, let's. So, what I'm thinking, one thing I'm thinking that you've already kind of blown my assumptions apart is that I had associated spring with primary mushroom season. Uh, yeah. But it sounds like, yeah, they're available outside of that. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's kind of funny. That's sort of like a Midwestern thing. There we are. You know, I mean, the, the morels in the Midwest are definitely a spring mushroom. Um, in Colorado, we get morels in the spring but again in my mind they are the hardest mushroom to find um oysters also in the spring but our primary mushroom season here for example is uh, mid-july through early october if we are lucky if we've had rain and and a lot of warm nights um that's what the mushrooms like here um in the pacific northwest uh, one of the reasons we love going there is because we can go there at thanksgiving and hunt mushrooms mm-hmm in November and December, and we can find awesome mushrooms there. Um, but they happen to have so much moisture that I will say you can pretty much find a mushroom almost any time of the year in the Pacific Northwest that you can eat. There are a few months where, where it might be touch and go, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so Midwest springtime mushrooms, Colorado, summer into fall, Pacific Northwest all year round. I mean, we could just travel around and hunt mushrooms the whole year round if we wanted to. <laughs> Let's do that. Which, which I love. I mean, we sometimes try to do that. Can't always, but yeah, I think that's really interesting. You bring that up because I don't often think about that. We're just, yeah. um, it's funny too, because I think at one point someone on Facebook posed that question, you know, if you, if you could go anywhere and money wasn't, you know, an object, what would you hunt every month of the year and where? And, and that was a really a fun discussion that came out of that. I thought, um, uh, so, uh, before, before we segue into safety, I want to mm-hmm. touch base on how to pick mushrooms sustainably. Okay. That's a, that's a fun one too. Um, I think this is a topic that, that, people often get really heated about. You'll see people online debating this idea of, you know, do we cut our mushrooms or can we pull them directly from the ground? Um, And you'll get all kinds of differing opinions on that. Um, You know, how does that affect future fruitings of the mushrooms? Um, Most people will tell you that the mushrooms don't care. 
Um, because as we mentioned earlier, those mushrooms are sort of like fruit on a tree. I mean, if you picked all the apples off of a tree, it's still going to put apples out the next year. That's just how it works, right? Um, mushrooms are very similar to that, so they don't really care. I think the biggest issue is that we need to protect the environment because they have such a special relationship with the trees. If the forest were to disappear, we would no longer have any mushrooms. So protecting our environment is really important when it comes to hunting and mushroom hunting as well. I mean, that's, um, if we, if we kill that mycelial network, which happens, like I mentioned earlier with, uh, trampling, but also if, if the trees die, obviously the, the mycelium will die as well. Um, because they're connect, they're intertwined with the tree roots in a sense. Um, so it's really, really important to protect the environment that they live in. Um, you know, whether we cut them or we pull them, uh, people can keep debating that one for years. Um, I just think they don't care. Uh, they're going to come back year after year as long as their environment is happy. Um, I like that way of thinking about it because, like, you compared it to the apple tree. Like, as long as you don't cut down the tree, you can pick all the apples you want. It seems like exactly. the same thing you, if, as yeah. long as you protect the mycelium. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we could talk about etiquette, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, etiquette might suggest that it would be a really nice thing to, uh, you know, maybe pick half the mushrooms that you find and leave some for the next forager. Um, you know, especially if you know you're in a, a competitive area. I mean, as foragers, sometimes we just know, you know, if I'm hunting in Salt Point State Park in California, I know that there are a million other people also hunting there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it would be really nice of me to, to leave some for the next person. And so, you know, we like to do things like that. Um, if you are in your super secret spot and you've never, ever seen another person, um, you know, pick your mushrooms. But I, I think we think about, you know, pick what you're going to use. Um, for us, that's not really just about picking for dinner because we often we're sort of traveling mushroom hunters. We'll go um, to Oregon and hunt burns and, and pick a ton of morels and come home with them. And so we're often thinking, how do I preserve these mushrooms so they can eat them for the whole year? Um, so I'm often not just picking for dinner. Um, we are having tons of conversations and doing tons of experiments about how to preserve mushrooms. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if we want to get into that now or talk about it later, but um, there's so much that we can talk about on that front from a cooking perspective and preservation, you know, yeah, uh, super fun stuff. Uh, we've been doing this year, kind of testing a lot of different methods. Yeah. You um, mentioned earlier um, uh, mushroom jerky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hadn't even right? thought of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just one of those wacky things that that we do. I would say the wackiest thing that we did this year was we started making something called shrub. Have you guys ever heard of that? Is that like a, it's a, it's a drink? drink? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So shrub is a drinking vinegar, really. And it's um, basically an idea where you add something, typically a fruit to vinegar and sugar, and you make kind of a syrup. And then you add it to, you know, soda water or a fancy alcoholic drink um, as a mix, whatever. Um, and, and it's a really lovely sort of refreshing kind of drink. 
Um, we started making mushroom shrub this year out of, uh, we did it with chanterelle mushrooms. I mentioned they have sort of that apricotty, fruity flavor. Um, it's, they are delightful as a shrub. It's so good. Um, and we also did it with matsutake mushrooms, which are, I would say, more interesting. I really like it because I like the flavor of matsutakes, um, which is a mushroom that's typically eaten more so with Asian foods and fish, if you will. It has uh, people compare them to cinnamon and dirty socks, which sounds disgusting. <laughs> To me, I never think of them that way. I just think of them as matsutake. They have their very own unique smell that I cannot deconstruct in my brain. It's just matsutake. Um, but those shrubs were super fun and really delicious. And, you know, our, our friends that are sort of mixology types just go bananas over stuff like this because they it just opens a whole new realm of like really cool mixed drinks and stuff like that. So, um, that was one fun thing we did. Um, Trent and I have a freeze dryer, so we've been, uh, experimenting with freeze dried mushrooms and just trying to see, you know, does it change the flavor profile of them to freeze dry them and, and then rehydrate, um, versus just dehydrating them. Um, what else have we done? Uh, we've done one of my favorite things to do is confit with a porcini, which is the idea that you slow cook them in oil. We use an olive oil for you know 12 hours overnight so that you have this amazing kind of um, mushroom flavored oil. And in that slow cooking, all the water kind of gets bubbled out of the mushrooms over that time. And so it lasts in the fridge for, I don't know, two, maybe three months if you're lucky. And you can just have this amazing flavored oil and mushrooms to kind of put on anything you want when you want to. Um, I'm trying to think what other weird things we did to mushrooms when we preserved them this year. Um, I don't know. I just made, we've made ice cream out of mushrooms. Huh which What's is crazy. Like? Oh my gosh. I mean, our kids think we're just absolutely nuts. You know, we put, mushroom, <laughs> we put mushrooms in everything, but there's a mushroom called the candy cat mushroom that is um, typically associated to California. We have found them in Oregon as well, but it is a maple flavored mushroom that is used in desserts often. And so candy cap ice cream is pretty common. Um, it's delicious. And, and when I say maple, it really really tastes like maple. I mean, you, you don't really know that you're eating a, a mushroom. We made candy cap popsicles. Um, you can make whipped cream and ice cream and, uh, any sort of, I don't know, um, like anglaise or things like that. I make scones out of them. They're absolutely delicious. Shortbread cookies. Um, You're challenging my mushroom flavor profile. I love it. I know. There are so many different flavors. And, you know, any mushroom that either has a flavor profile like that, where it's kind of maple-y, or in the case of the chanterelle, where it's really more fruity. Um, we make sorbet out of chanterelles. That's another thing we've done. Absolutely delicious. I make jam out of chanterelles. I combine with apricots and make a chanterelle apricot jam. Um, that, that is 
like to die for in a baked brie, <laughs> you know? So there's so many different things that you can do. And, um, mostly we're, you know, dehydrating most of the mushrooms, but in the case of chanterelles, for example, and some of the other mushrooms that we're finding, um, in Oregon, when we hunt there, those mushrooms don't always do very well dried or dehydrated. So typically you're freezing them. Um, you cook them a little till they release their water and you freeze them or you make a Dexel out of them and you freeze that because you just, their flavor is lost uh, if you dehydrate them. It just doesn't come back very well and it can be kind of leathery and things like that. But um, gosh, there's so many fun things you can do with, with all these wild edibles. It's really pretty amazing. Very cool. Yeah. Uh Let's take a quick break uh, to hear a word from our sponsor. Stick with us because when we get back, we're going to talk about safety. <laughs> we'll say that after the break. Um, and then safety, getting safety third. Yep. <laughs> What's the glitcher? We'll keep you coming back for the safety. All right. We'll be right back. Proas believes women hunt hard and deserve the gear to support their hunting and outdoor passions. What sets Proas apart is our belief that women require performance outdoor gear for all of their hunting and field pursuits. Their layering systems are quite technical but philosophically simple. Optimal base layers, prime insulation layers, and durable shell layers to stop wind and water. Take pride in not being one of the guys. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right. Um, all right, welcome back. So... Diving into safety, what are your guidance for us for safety and tips for folks just getting started? Sure. Um, well, as we talked about before, I'll mention it one more time. I think, you know, the biggest thing is just not eating a wild mushroom you're not 100% sure of. I'm just going to put that out there one more time. We can move on. But um, for me, I think probably getting lost in the woods is 
is really easy when you're mushroom hunting because you get out there and you, you get really excited. You know, you're looking at the ground, you're walking around and it's really easy to sort of lose your bearing. Um, and you know, you've, you've circled around 10 times and then all of a sudden you don't remember which direction your car was in anymore. So I think it's super important to either know the area that you're going into well enough that that's not going to happen to you. Um, or if you're in a new area, having some sort of tools with you, um, whether it be, you know, an, a GPS app on your phone, uh, Trent and I like to use Gaia GPS. I know a lot of other people use Onyx, um, which I think hunters are often using as well. Um, those things are super awesome because you can download your maps before you even go out knowing where you're going to go and you don't need cell service, uh, to have, you know, GPS access on your maps. They're, they're going to tell you exactly where you are if you've downloaded them before you left. So that's, that's a big a tool for point. us. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. You're like walking in circles, staring at the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine it'd be easy to just lose track. I mean, you know, just even which direction was the car? I mean, it's always like, where did we park? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we do it all the time. But, you know, I mean, we started with uh, a Garmin fancy GPS and we found those really difficult difficult to utilize. Um, and so we just use our phones and, and a GPS app on the phone. Um, one of my other favorite things is like the cheapest walkie talkies that you can buy. Um, we are never miles apart. We are often, uh, several hundred feet apart, but you know, when you're over Hill and Dale, Sometimes you can't hear each other and we don't like to be screaming in the woods either. So having a, a cheap walkie talkie to connect with your buddy, uh, using the buddy system, heading out with a buddy is always a, a great thing when you're mushroom hunting. Um, I think those are really good ways to ensure that you're not going to get lost and that you can successfully uh, get out of the woods just as well as getting in. Um, you know, when it comes to hunting burns, which we do a lot, Safety takes on a whole new, uh, just a lot more to think about, essentially. Um, as you can imagine, in a forest where the, the trees have all been burned, um, things like wind and rain are really important to pay attention to. Um, we never want to be in a burn when it's super windy because trees are falling over all the time. Um and if it's rained, it gets really slick in there. So I think you need to kind of be wary of that. Uh, oftentimes we're hunting on pretty steep hillsides. And if you're in a burn and it's just rained, it's like crazy slick mud. You just don't want to, you don't want to be in certain areas at certain times. Um, another thing in a burn is that when a tree burns fully, uh, you can imagine its roots burn out as well. So there are often these really deep holes Um in the ground where the, the, the root of the tree just burned away. And so you kind of need to be careful of your knees and your ankles and things like that. If you accidentally step in a big hole, um, you know, that's something to watch for. Um, outside of that, you know, mushroom ID and, and the weather and making sure you don't get lost. Um, I think of mushroom hunting as sort of hiking with purpose. So, you know, any precautions that you would normally take going into the woods, um, you know, bring a first aid kit just in case, bring mosquito spray just in case, um, you know, maybe even 
bring one of those really thin space blankets just in case, you know, similar to hunting, you know, whatever you guys have safety wise in your packs, it's a similar idea. What do you use to harvest? What do you carry them in? Do you have like a special bag or basket? Ah, yeah, we do. We are um, super nerdy about our bags. (laughs) In fact, uh, Trent and I actually designed our own foraging bag because we're so nerdy about it. Um, The bag that we use, so you'll often hear people say, oh, you should always use a mesh bag because you want to spread the spores around the forest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I kind of think that's sort of, again, one of those myths, um, mushrooms, every single mushroom puts out billions of spores. I mean, just billions. We're probably breathing in spores right now. They don't have any problem sending their spores out into the air. Um, but we do, we do utilize a mesh, uh, portion of our bag as mesh, not because we want to, you know, be good citizens and spread spores around, but more so because it helps the dirt to fall out of the the mushroom bag and back to the forest floor. Um, and one thing that's super important as a mushroom hunter is to make sure that we call it picking clean. Um, if you pick dirty mushrooms and you put them all together in your bag and you get home, half of mushroom hunting is after you get home, right? You have to, you have to clean your mushrooms and prepare them and you know, if they need to be frozen, you got to deal with that. You got to cook them and get them in the freezer. If you need to get them into the dehydrator, I mean, a lot of the time is spent with this idea of what do I do with them once I get home. So if you've put a bunch of dirty mushrooms all in a basket together, they are going to just spread their dirt around and it's going to take you five times as long to actually prepare them to eat. So you always want to pick clean. Um, which means, you know, brush most of the dirt off of each mushroom, spend the time in the field, cut the the dirt off the bottom before you put it in the basket. Um, We like to have a basket that has, uh, ours has quadrants in it. So if I'm out hunting for a couple different kinds of mushrooms, which in Colorado during our season, uh, aside from morels, all of our other mushrooms are kind of going off at the same time. So I like to have a, you know, a quadrant for porcinis and a quadrant for lactarius and a quadrant for hawkswings and whatever else I'm collecting so that I don't mix them all together. Um, if we're out hunting morels, for example, and we want to get super nerdy, we might even uh, segment them out by, um, by choice, meaning like, uh, all of the A mushrooms go here and the B mushrooms go here and the C mushrooms go here, meaning like the A mushrooms are super choice and the B mushrooms are, you know, sort of your, your everyday mushroom and the C mushrooms, we might only use those in soup or something like that. Um, so sometimes we do that too. So, um, a lot of people use a basket going out into the woods. Uh, one of the reasons I don't like that is because it ends up like um, just sort of bumping against your leg as you walk through the forest. And so it's this sort of bump, bump, bump type of thing. If you have a rounded basket, if you have more of a rectangular basket, uh, that I don't mind as much. You know, when we end up walking maybe an average of six miles or something in a day when you're out hunting, uh, you want to make sure that you have a, a bag that's just comfortable for you to carry around for six miles. And, you know, you're let's say you're three miles in and, and your basket's now full, you have to carry 10 pounds of mushrooms out of the forest that 
that last three miles back. Um, and it's more so you're, you're probably hunting the whole way back, but your bags get really full and heavy. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I would recommend a, a mesh bag, uh, that has some sort of, um, quadrant in it. Uh, if you love your basket, awesome, you know, take the basket out. Some people use a bucket, a five gallon bucket. That's fine too. Um, I would suggest maybe drilling some holes in it or something in the bottom to let the dirt kind of escape if you do that. I've got to say, I love how much thought you've put into this. <laughs> oh my gosh. We think about all these crazy things. I mean, if you, if Trent were here, he would be wanting to talk to you about his mushroom knife right now because like that's <laughs> just, you know, has to be a certain way for him, which is so funny. Um, yeah, we have, we have all these tools that we use for sure. Our, our mushroom knives have brushes incorporated into the end of the knife so that you can, so you can slice the dirt off the mushroom and then brush the dirt off the cap at the same time. (laughs) Um, and so that you don't, you know, some people say, Oh, just take a a paintbrush out with me, like a little tiny one. Um, I don't know about you, but I am constantly losing things in the woods. So the less that I have with me, the better, because I will lose it. <laughs> Glasses, <laughs> knives, hats, mushroom bags, whatever. Yep. <laughs> I have to balance them. whenever my dog's out with me, he wears an e-collar. So I'll have the remote in one hand and then a knife in the other. And usually yeah. like, the bag in one of those hands also. And one of those things always gets left. And then like yes. 20 steps later, you're like, why do my hands feel lighter? And you have to turn around and run back. You know what? It is so true. We have, and those e-collar remotes are expensive too. I mean, we have made the mistake of losing one of those things in the woods. And that was not a fun day because um, we have two dogs that we take out as well. And we also have them on e-collars just in case, you know, I mean, if they were to see a deer or something and take off, you know, we have a way to control them. Um, but gosh, I have a hard time with that thing because you have to hang it around your neck. I need to find a better way to deal with it. I, I'm thinking about that one all the time. I hate feeling that around my neck. It drives me nuts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have you have tons of tools. And so, you know, you're, I mean, we could get into talking about gear. Footwear is super important because often mushroom hunters are out in the rain hunting. And so... You know, we, I could tell you like what brands of hiking boots are truly waterproof and those that are not, <laughs> that are yeah. not really, you guys could probably tell me that too, because I'm sure it's important for you too, but yeah. um, yeah, I think about I've, all this stuff. I've, I've learned to distinguish quite closely between waterproof and water resistant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Some of them just aren't. You know, their claims are, are, are just claims. <laughs> They're yep. not really, they don't really work. Um, but yeah, all that stuff of having a good pack is important. Trying to figure out what to bring so you're not carrying too much, but just enough, you know, all that stuff. Becca, do you have any follow-up questions? Um, no. Oh my gosh, I feel like we've, I hope whoever's listening to this uses some of this advice because I think we've really touched on so many of the important things. And I just find myself nodding my head, like, am I doing that? Am I not doing that? <laughs> Good ideas for the next time I go out. Mm-hmm. I think of, it would be, go ahead. Go ahead no, sorry. no, please go ahead. I was going to say, I think it would be good to maybe talk about, um, for the people that are just getting started mushroom hunting, sort of 
some of the resources and, you know, where do I start? How do I start? Perfect. Uh, these, these are the kind of questions we get all the time. Um, you know, and people wanting to go out on a foray, which is awesome. Um, we don't really do that. It's, uh, difficult to get permits from the forest service, um, permitting. Oh, that's another thing we should talk about too. Yeah. But, um, if you're just getting started, I would say, probably the number one best thing for you to do is to join a mycological association or society in your area. Um, there are mycological associations everywhere. Uh, I think here in Colorado, we have three super healthy mycological associations. Um, it's a great way to meet other geeky mushroom people. Number one, um, they are all super knowledgeable and one of the super best things about them is that they often do forays. Uh, and it's really usually pretty inexpensive to join. I want to say like 25 bucks or something for a yearly fee for most of them. So that would be my number one tip. Join a mycological association. Go out on some forays with them. Meet some other people. Um, you know, get to know some other folks that, that uh, have been doing this a while. I find mushroom people are super awesome. Uh, just really great group of people. Um, and one of my favorite groups too, because there's, we cross kind of all demographics. Um, I think it's one of my favorite things about mushroom hunting is the people we meet are just so generous and amazing. And yet the demographics, when you put them all on a piece of paper, you just, you, there's no demographic that classifies us all. You know, whether it's young people or old people or women or men or Democrats or Republicans or however you want to classify people, we run the gamut. We are we are everywhere. Super cool. Um, so anyways, I, I digress. But um, join a, a mycological association. Number two, and this one's a bit weird maybe, but it really is helpful, is um, if you're on Facebook, search for a mushroom group that is local to your area. Um you know, for example, we have one here called Western Slope Fungophiles, um, and there are a ton of people there. Um, there are many, many, many mushroom groups on Facebook. They're great for so many different reasons. Um, one reason being you can kind of throw your questions out there, just like Becca did. You know, when we started this conversation, she was saying, hey, I put this, posted this up online and said, what is this? That's a pretty typical way to use a group like that. Um, but another way that we use it is um, if we're going to a new area to hunt mushrooms and it's something, a mushroom that we're just learning, we sort of use it to, we'll go back maybe to last year's season and peruse all of the posts in that group during that time about that particular mushroom. So it gives us an idea of when they started coming out, what kind of forest they grow in. Um, you know, people love to share all this information on Facebook and especially in these specific mushroom groups. So it's a really great way to find out a lot more information about when a mushroom's coming out. Um, if you're waiting for the morels, you can bet that someone in that Facebook group is going to be like, I found 10 blonde morels today. And that's sort of a Hey, it's time to go out and check my morel spots. It's just it's awesome sleuthing. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, exactly. It's totally, it's, it, it's a way to sleuth. <laughs> it does make uh, me wonder, given that you mushroom hunt across the country, how many of those Facebook groups you belong to? 
Too many. (laughs) (laughs) Too many. That's one downfall is that my entire feed is full of mushrooms. That's all that's in my feed. (laughs) Is it a downfall? I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It's fine. It's fun. But yeah, so Facebook is a great resource. Um, Another thing to do is to make sure you get an identification book, a field guide that is appropriate for your area. Um, You know, there is... uh, One book that I refer to as the Bible uh, that David Aurora wrote, and there's the pocket guide that goes with the Bible, the All the Rain Promises and more. Those two books, uh, once you start geeking out, are just kind of books that every mushroom hunter should have, Uh, whether you read them or not is up to you, because there's a ton of information, but David Aurora is a funny guy, so they're amusing, even though there's too much over information. Um, but having a good field guide, um, you know, with pictures, great pictures in it and all of the identification characteristics that you're looking for is just another tool that you need to have. Um, when you're, I always, I don't know if you do this too, Kristen, I always like to use at least two when I'm trying to ID something new, Mm -hmm. I'll use a book and I'll, you know, source it out to friends or I'll use a book in another book or I'll use a book google but trying to always use more than one at least two different ways of identifying yeah i think that's a, a great uh, tip for people is you know especially if you're brand new um you know d- don't just look at a picture in a book and think okay yeah that looks i think that's what that is um i think it's it's good to have that sort of safety check if you will and maybe you're uh, second idea is to post it in a Facebook group and, and just say, hey, I found this. Can you help me out? It, and by the way, if you're doing that, if someone's wanting to get an ID from any sort of online forum, you're going to want to make sure you take a picture of of the cap and the stem of the underside of the cap so we can see what's on the bottom of the mushroom in the ground or on the tree or wherever you found it in its environment and generally of the environment. And if people have those four photos you're probably uh, able to get a pretty good identification from someone online. Um, I think uh, the next thing for people getting started, and and this is the ultimate, if you can find it, is to go out on a foray with somebody else that knows the ropes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you go out once or twice with somebody that knows what they're doing, that shortens your learning curve hugely. So if you have that luxury, um, definitely take advantage of it for sure. Um, but those are those are some really good things to do to to get started. Nice. And by foray, is that just like a foraging trip out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we call taking someone out into the woods with us. We would be going on a foray. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, or uh, with your, you know, mycological association, a foray might be a group of people. Uh-huh. Um, which brings me back to the, the idea of permits um, that just kind of popped into my head earlier. Uh, mushroom hunting generally does require a permit from the Forest Service um, to be legal. Here in Colorado, those permits are free, um, but you still need one on your person. So it's always a good idea to check in with your local ranger station. Um, you know, if you're planning to go out foraging for mushrooms, they will they will give you that information that you need, or you can research it online too, of course. That is good to know. Yeah. All right. I th- I feel 
Like my curiosity has a lot to chew on right now. So thank you so much. This is great. You're so welcome. (laughs) Becca, do you have um, anything before we head into hits and misses? I am really excited to just start adding to my personal repertoire. So I I think my goal this year is one more mushroom, either a spring or a fall variety. But no, I'm excited. This conversation has sparked that. I'm. I don't know that I'm in an area. I'm, I'll have to do some research if I can gather that candy cap mushroom. But I'm intrigued by the mushroom ice cream <laughs> idea. Yeah, you would probably have to travel to at least Oregon to find the candy cap. Okay. I don't think you're going to get them in Montana. Probably not. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, let's do some hits and misses. Uh, so hits and misses is our weekly closing question. And the question is, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? Becca, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, this is going to be embarrassing. So earlier in this conversation, we were talking about losing your e-caller remote. And (laughs) 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 funny, we talked about that because last time I was looking for morels, actually two weekends ago, I lost it. I must have set it down when I bent down to, I always use a knife to cut morels just because like Kristen said, I just don't want the dirt in the bag with all of them. So I bent down, I must've just set it down and I forgot to pick it back up um, and didn't realize until much, much later in the day. So I went back out this past weekend, um, Memorial Day weekend to see if I could find it. And it's funny, I turned on the tracking on my Onyx app just to make sure I was, I was gridding trying to find it and to make sure I wasn't uh, backtracking. Mm-hmm. And in a, it's like a 300 yard long stretch of woods that I knew it was going to be. Um, I hiked almost two miles. <laughs> oh man, to, in 300 yards. <laughs> Just back and forth and back and forth. I mean, it was on a steep hillside, not super steep, but like up and down a hill. So um, I had some ground to cover, but it was just funny. I walked and never found it. So Oh, you didn't. <sighs> oh, bummer. But did I mean, you find... Made- did you find more oh, morels though? But I found so <laughs> like, about the important thing. Right. I was like, at what point do I just give up looking for the remote and just keep looking for mushrooms? I mean, they, they make them green, so they're almost impossible to find once you lose them. Oh, but yeah. uh, we just had a big rainstorm, like five days of just straight rain. And then it was like two days of pure sunshine. So it was just oh. the perfect conditions for mushrooms. Yes. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah, that's a good point. Why don't they make those things like hot pink or something? <laughs> so that we have to buy another one when we lose I know. it. <laughs> I know. It's not cool. <laughs> Maybe Hatch like buried it. He's like, I know what to do with this. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Kristen, what were you aiming for this week and how did it go? Um, gosh, I would say that we have been just looking at the weather report every single day this week, <laughs> hoping for rain in, in Colorado, maybe like anywhere else, our weather reports change every five minutes or so. So it's like, oh, we have, we have rain in the forecast this week. There's 30%, 40%, 50%. And uh, we didn't get any rain in our area, unfortunately. But um, we have been trying to decide when to go back out into our local burn to hunt for morels and um trent is actually up there right now because we got a tip from one of our friends jane 
who said um, she talked to somebody that had found morels in the burn uh, last week. So um, this week has really been all about this idea of how are we going to get our hands on some morels in a really dry climate? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Which is silly maybe, but these are the things we think about. Um, And so I'm, I am hoping that uh, Trent comes home with a basket of morels. That would just make my week, I think. Nice. Well, yeah. Good luck. Yeah, Thank I heard you. Colorado's just been unusually dry this spring. Yeah, I mean it's it's a dry climate always. Um, last year we were super spoiled with you know pretty much perfect weather. Um, this year it's been dry. Uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed in in kind of the slowdown that has happened with the pandemic is that I have been able to go on a weekly hike with two of my good friends. And usually our schedules would never have allowed that. Um, But every Friday afternoon, we've been going for like these eight to 10 mile hikes. And the last one that we went on, we were towards the midpoint of our hike and we were up high and the wildflowers had just kind of exploded in front of us. And we were going to find a spot on the hill to sit down and grab a drink before turning around and going back. And I noticed that there was this rock turned over. And so I was like, oh, here's a rock turned over. That means there's a bear nearby. And I look up and there was this gorgeous cinnamon bear, probably 150, 200 yards away up the hill from us with this blonde muzzle just looking at us. Um, And so, yeah, just to be able to encounter, encounter that bear in the field where she was so visible and so still and in the midst of all of these balsam root flowers. It was just gorgeous. It was my first bear sighting this season and it was lovely. And she saw you guys. She didn't even run off. No, she saw us. And so my guess is, is that she heard us coming up the, because, you know, we were just hiking. Um, We weren't being quiet. So she, I think she heard us coming because where the rock was turned over was closer to the trail. And so I think she heard us and then ran up the hill and yeah, she was just sitting there watching us. And so we didn't hang around because I wasn't sure if that meant um, she had cubs in the area or what, but it was still just beautiful to, to look at her. Yeah. 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 Sounds amazing. It was cool. All right, so we'll wrap this up for now. But if you have a mushroom question or something to add, we want to hear from you. Send us an email. Um, we can be found at artemis at nwf.org. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm Marsha Brownlee with my co-hosts. Aka Azito. And our wonderful guest. Kristen Blizzard. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, get outside, and look for mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs>